Uh, so if you're here for the first time, uh, we welcome you. Uh, a lot of you might be here for Ligonier Conference. So since you're here for the first week in Second Timothy, that means you have to be here for the rest of the series. So you have now committed yourselves, just, just so you know. Um, uh, what we're doing uh, special for this series, you'll see a new slide up, and I want to thank uh, Ben Swanson for doing the slide. Each of those little icons is going to coincide with the sermons for the series, and um, Carter Walker is drawing uh, custom illustrations for the sermon guides going through 2 Timothy. So if you have a child from ages 6 to 10, roughly, uh, we we have those, and so they can take notes, they can ask questions, they can color in those, those graphics that have to do with the text. So you've got this week's, and then you'll continue to get them as we go. So parents, we want to give you an additional tool for your children to learn, uh, and then to give you opportunities to engage with them and ask them questions afterwards. So uh, it's great to have gifted uh, members of the body who can help with those things. So this series is entitled, For the Faith. Uh, entrusted to endure. Normally when we open a new book, uh, I'll I'll do um, an overview. But because we spent so much time in in 1 Timothy, and this is a much different book than 1 Timothy. Uh, It's going to be less technical than we've been. So in 1 Timothy, we dealt with a lot of ecclesiology. So the the nature and structure and workings of the church. Um, We dealt more with uh, some kind of... uh, technical pastoral issues, uh, church discipline, and very specific situations to Ephesus. Uh, This letter is what we understand probably the last letter that Paul wrote uh, that we have preserved in the New Testament canon. And so at the end of his life, Paul is reflecting on what is most important. You get to hear his, his shepherding heart, and you get one of the most intimate relationships in the New Testament, probably next to Jesus and the Apostle John. Where Paul and, and, and Timothy have this, this, this ongoing discipleship relationship. Um, and Paul being in his final imprisonment in Rome. Um, that sheet for the kids, you'll see Paul writing in chains. I like how Carter drew that together. But as he's contemplating on the end of his ministry, and he's writing Timothy a letter on uh, what he wants to continue, there, you're, there are three main themes that you're going to see throughout the book. Uh, and it, they're worked into the title. The number one theme is faith. As you read, you will see different versions of the word faith. You'll see faithfulness. You'll see faithful. We're going to begin looking at Timothy's upbringing in a faithful home, which led to his faith. Um, he follows Paul's faith. And he's, in, he's to entrust this gospel to faithful men who will be faithful in passing it on to others. And they can only do that because Christ is faithful. And this entire letter, as 1 Timothy, as much of the New Testament, is set against those who oppose, who stand in opposition to create trouble for the faith, in a capital F sense. The set of doctrine that points us to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the false teachers that undermine that. So Timothy His entire ministry, the ministry of every pastor who's ever desired to please his Lord is for the faith. Then our um, second theme is what Timothy is entrusted with. This faith, he's, he's entrusted with a great deposit. There's an emphasis on the word, on preaching, on applying, on teaching. Because Timothy has been giving, given what is most valuable on this earth. We have been entrusted with the ministry of the gospel, and it is like a chest of gold that we are to distribute freely but protect viciously. And then thirdly, to endure. Another thing that comes up here several times is that Timothy is not to be ashamed of this gospel. He is called in faithfulness with what he is entrusted to endure, because like Paul will say, I finished the race, he wants Timothy to finish the race well. So in that instance, every pastor and every Christian has much to learn from this text. Uh, And as we're going to see in our outline today, that this faithfulness and this endurance is dependent on remembrance. So we're going to work through these first seven verses with an eye on remembrance. 
looking back to remembering Christ, the, the uh, source and the, the foundation and the end of our faith. We're going to remember those in the faith, spiritual mothers and fathers who came before us. We're going to remember the gift of God, the work of the Holy Spirit that enables and empowers us in our faith and in our, our ministry. And so faithful endurance begins with the work of Christ, and all along it is remembering the work that he has done in you and he has done in others who have ministered to you and you minister alongside. So here's what we're going to do in our sermon. I want you to keep those things in mind. We're going to briefly go over verses 1 through 5 and we're going to land on verses 6 and 7 and get most of our application and our time in those final two verses. So let me read the first seven verses and then we'll work through it together. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and self-control. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the great gift we have in Christ Jesus. The application of our salvation through your, your spirit, who sets our heart of stone ablaze, the mercy and grace and love of our Lord who would lay down his life for us. Lord, we praise you for such a great salvation that we enjoy. We thank you for the faithfulness of those who have come before us. For the centuries, you've kept your people. Even when it seems like everyone is rebellious, there is always a remnant. And in the faithfulness of mothers and fathers in the faith, the next generation is raised up and the next generation is raised up. Lord, may we be faithful as mothers and fathers, seeking sons and daughters in the faith that the kingdom of Jesus Christ would be proclaimed, would be embraced, would be walked out among the world. May we be light in a dark place. May we take what seems like an ember and fan it into flame, that our passion and our zeal would strive to that of the Apostle Paul who pours out his heart night and day as he preaches and prays and cares for those entrusted to him. May every Christian in this room not think that this is just for pastors. This is for saints, brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. And if there is anyone in this room who is trying to light his or her own torch, they think that they can start a fire on their own. May you humble them. May you convict them, as Pastor Jesse said. May they cry out to you, as we read in, in Revelation, so that they can cry with us, you have redeemed my soul. We ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so in 2 Timothy, uh, almost identical greeting to that of 1 Timothy. If you look at the two, very parallel. We spent a lot of time on the greeting in First Timothy. Um, so, if you want to know more of an overview on First Timothy and more of an overview on the introduction, you can go back to the first message of that series. Um, but again, I want to quickly walk through this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, this is a very personal letter written to a real person, Timothy. But if they're that close, you think Paul has to remind him that he's an apostle? You think Timothy forgot? This, like all the letters, 
When they're written to individuals and written to, um, they're always written to churches. Just like the end of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy ends with the line, grace to you, grace be with you. That you is also in the plural. This is written to Timothy, expected to be read to all. That's why Paul reminds them of his apostolic authority. But he's not doing it in an arrogant manner. He's not saying, look at me, look at who I am, because quickly, right after that, he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. He's a, he's a sent one of the risen Lord. Not of his own doing, but by the will of God. He recognizes that this is God's sovereign plan to call Paul out of hating the way of life in Jesus Christ to being the apostle to the Gentiles, that he actually gets to be a part of what God is doing in redeeming a harvest of those who will live in Christ. And he does that according to this promise of life, the life that is in Christ Jesus. Christ, this, this life, is the source of Paul's ministry, and it's the purpose and the end of his ministry. You can't minister life unless you have life first. There is no ministry in, in dead messages and dead men. We have a living Savior who is risen and alive. And because he is risen and we have risen with him, there is a promise of life to whoever put their trust in him that they will live as he lives. And so this, this ministry is from life to life. And it is from life to life for those who will believe and there is a harvest, there is a promise that I have my people in this city, in this nation, in this earth, and we will continue to proclaim and foster this life until the last life is redeemed and the Lord returns. So this ministry does not change. It is not unique to Timothy. This promise of life is still the same promise that we offer in the gospel. And so in that, life and death is before us all. Every one of you, as far as I can tell, you're alive this morning. Every one of you, I know for sure, will die one day if Christ does not return. And this promise of life is only in Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says the promise of life that is in Christ. There is no other source of life. There is no other way to get breath in your lungs than by the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross applied by the Holy Spirit. That is why it should not be surprising to you that Paul mentions Christ Jesus three times in two short verses in this introduction. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the most important thing to remember. As we look at remembrance through this, throughout this sermon, this is what you must remember, first and foremost and always. This is the gospel essential. That if anything will live on to eternity... It must be of Christ, it must be in Christ, and it must be from Christ. And so when Paul writes to Timothy, his beloved child in the faith, who we looked at last time, Timothy probably had a lot of ailments, a lot of weaknesses, a lot of fears. We'll get into that a little later. This godly, timid young man is to remember above all things, remember Christ Jesus. He is your hope, he is your source, and it is him you proclaim. So, verse 2, when he gets to Timothy, my beloved child. Um, this chapter, especially our section, is full of intimate details. It shows the relationship between Paul and Timothy and how that discipleship relationship is fostered, but how it's worked out as well. Um, here's what I want you to notice as we work through this passage. Notice how Paul and Timothy model the Christian life. Notice how essential it is for us to know one another and the, the depth of relationship that comes from lovingly walking alongside of people for days and years. And this message is so needed in the church today. Because for many, the church is just a business. 
is just a social club. It's just an empty routine. There are many you here who think you are being faithful in the Christian life by showing up on a Sunday and going home and never giving it another thought. That is not the picture that we see in the scriptures. That is not what Christ did. That is not what we are called to do. That is not what Paul did. That is not what made Timothy the leader he was. The people of God become a family of God. And what do families do? They live together. And they love each other. And they fight. And they argue. And they kiss. And they make up. But they are family for eternity. Some of you don't know your family. You may be in Christ, but you act like an orphan. And it's not the picture we see here, and it's not the picture we should see in the church. So, um, what do we know about the relationship between Paul and Timothy, my namesake? Timo Theos, honoring God. This man aptly named, I want to look at two passages. Acts, Acts chapter 16 is the first one. Timothy Everywhere he is mentioned in the New Testament is commended. Acts chapter 16, verse 1. I'm just going to read the first three verses. There's a lot here. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy. We know he's a disciple. He's a follower of Christ. The son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. So, Half-breeds were not admired in those days. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra, but the church recognized him at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. Uh, What? This is a grown man, and just matter-of-factly, Paul takes him and circumcises him. You know you are committed to Christ when a grown man agrees to circumcision. This shows, okay, Paul, you're my father in the faith because my father is not a believer. Paul becomes a surrogate father, and Timothy will follow him, and he will listen to him. Even though I don't need circumcision for my salvation because of the the, the sake of the salvation of the Jews, I will get circumcised if it means that some of them may believe. I will harm myself for the sake of life in others. This shows the character of Timothy. There's another one in uh, Philippians chapter 2. Verse 19, Paul had a lot of co-workers, but apparently none was like Timothy. Philippians chapter 2, verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Timothy is Paul's messenger. He knows that Timothy, with a cheerful heart, is going to come back with a report. There, there are no Facebook updates. You know, there, there's, there's no uh, Twitter feed to follow. Timothy was Paul's Twitter. If he wanted news on the church, he sent Timothy. And Timothy would bring back the good news of those who Paul loved dearly. Paul says, I have none like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. That's why he knew he'd get a good report, because Timothy loved them above all else. For they all seek their own interests, implying not Timothy, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. That is their relationship. It is centered on Christ, and it is a joyful witness to everyone who they come into contact with. So this is Paul's writing to Timothy. The last line here, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, I'm not going to give in any commentary. I'm just going to read John Stott's quote on it, which should be on the, on the screen. Um, I think this sums it up beautifully. What does this line mean, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord? God's love as being grace to the worthless, mercy to the helpless, and peace to the restless. Grace to the worthless, mercy to the helpless, and peace to the restless. Well, God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord together constitute the one spring from which this threefold stream flows forth. 
Praise our God and Father and our Lord Jesus Christ for grace and mercy and peace. Amen. So as we go from the greeting uh, to the body of the text, verse 3. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors. Now, Paul, at the end of his life, is looking back fondly, and he's, and, and he's thankful that God has kept a remnant. He's thankful that some of his brothers, according to the flesh, remained faithful, and that he was called to minister, that he stood behind Abraham and Moses and David, and Jeremiah, and on, and on, and on. And he's praising God for his faithfulness and the faithful remnant throughout the ages. And he's thanking God that the God who began a work in Abraham wasn't done yet. He was still continuing that work in Timothy and would continue it through Timothy and through others. And so Paul says, he thanks God whom I serve with a clear conscience. This is where you want to be in service to God. Of course, Paul is a sinner. Of course, Paul Paul made mistakes. But he can say that he has no ministry regrets. He can say that he has kept the faith. He has finished the race. He has confronted the false gospels. He's not in it for for, for shameful gain. He hasn't uh, lorded his authority as an apostle over others. This is where we want to be in service to Christ. Yes, all of us make mistakes. But Paul can say, my conscience is clear. Because my motivations were for the Lord and for his glory. I was faithful with what he's given me. In my little weak efforts, the Lord continues to multiply. And so in that, and Paul's just reflective thankfulness, looking back on the Lord's faithfulness, looking back on his life, he ties in this, this personal detail. I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Man, how many of us can say that? That we love people to the extent that we constantly pray for them night and day. The emphasis on prayer is evident all throughout Paul. We love Paul's theology. That Paul's prayer was rich and ceaseless. I want to look at two examples. Romans chapter 1. Verses 8 through 10. Rome is Paul's largest letter and his most detailed explanation of the gospel. And it comes out of a love and intimate knowledge of the church in Rome. Romans chapter 1, verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Because, of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. This is a lot of time in prayer. As he's mentioning Rome all the time and Timothy all the time. Asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. That picture of I am praying for you, I love you, I want to meet you. I want to fellowship with you. There is great joy in that for Paul. One more in Acts chapter 20. Paul's ministry in Ephesus, years before this letter is written to the church in Ephesus. How does he describe his, his ministry? Acts chapter 20, verses 31 and 32. If you're new here, you don't know your way around your Bible, listen to the beautiful sound of flipping pages. Um, You'll get there, but if you need help, they're on the screen as well. Acts 20, 31 and 32. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. That is a man who is convinced of the truth of the gospel and the necessity for the churches. And so in that ministry, in the day when he departs, in just a few verses, they're all going to cry because this one that they love, who's ministered to them night and day, is now leaving. And what does he leave them with? And now I commend you, or trust to you, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are being sanctified. Paul loves them. 
Paul is not the best thing they have. He is entrusting them to God and reminding them of the word of his grace. The effectiveness of my ministry is not me. The passion in my ministry is not me. It is what I've been given and what I've entrusted. And so you want to disciple someone well, you want to care for someone well, pray for them well. Encourage them well, as Paul does for Timothy. And for Paul, there was no halfway in following Christ. It is teaching night and day. It is prayer night and day. Because he knows how great of a sinner he was and is. I think some of us who fail to be in the word, fail to pray, fail to be with the saints, we forget how great of sinners we are if we're in Christ and how much we've been saved from. Or maybe we spend so much time thinking about our sin, we forget to look to our Savior. Every time Paul thought about his sin, he looks to his Savior. And every time he thought about the grace he'd been given, he looks to those whom have also been given grace or have not yet been given grace, and he prays for them because he knows how good and gracious his Savior is. There's this beautiful rhythm in Paul's love for the church. It continues to get more personal as we get into verse 4. As I remember your tears, um, we don't know what that means. Um, Timothy kind of came and went. Uh, Timothy ministered to Paul when he was in prison. He actually tells him at the end of chapter 4, verse 21, do your best to come before winter. And so maybe there's this, this, this sadness when your father in the faith is locked away in prison or taken away to Rome or sends you away and you don't know if you're ever going to see him again. And so there's this deep commitment by Timothy, this sensitive man, who is godly and who feels deeply for his father and the faith. And this mutual affection deepens the personal sketch. And so Paul goes on, he says, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. Don't you love those people? The people who you see and they're just joyful, and you can't be around them and not be joyful? There is no greater joy than when you are around saints who have joy in Christ. Paul says, yeah, I know we cried last time I saw you, but I can't wait to see you again because I know we're going to smile and we're going to laugh and we're going to sing and we're going to pray because of the joy that we share in Christ. And so before we move on to our next section, what do the relationship between Paul and Timothy have to teach us? What can we learn? I want you to think for a moment. If this is a good model for discipleship, and I think it is, what should discipleship produce? What should discipleship consist of? It should begin with this mutual affection. We love Christ, so we love his sheep. It should continue with faithful prayer and encouragement and joy and reminders of, of Christ. It begins with love and it continues in love. And so maybe you've just breezed through this before. Maybe you've never read this before. But how many of you have experienced this? Do your relationship, and I'm talking to two Christians now. If you're here and you're a visitor, listen in. But if you're a Christian, you're a brother or sister in Christ. Your faith is in him. You are a new creature in Christ. Do your relationships with your brothers and sisters look like that? Do you have anyone in your life like this? Do you have anyone in your life who would talk about you that way? Are you that joyful to be around? I know I'm not. But I'm thankful for those of you who are. Honestly, I didn't even know this was possible until being here. I'm thankful that I know what that looks like now. I'm thankful that I have brothers like, you guys don't know this, every week, David prays for me. He sends me a text either early in the morning or while he's sitting on the other end of the pew praying for me. 
we are praying for one another all of the time. I can give many, many, many examples. Guys, I know I can come and give a hug, and I can't even avoid a hug anymore. <laughs> and they say, I love you, bro, and I know they mean it. And it's not some empty cliche. That is a beautiful thing, and that is how the body of Christ is designed to be. For many of you, that might terrify you. That I might have to open up. I might actually have to get hurt. Or maybe you think I'm not worthy of being loved. You're not. But if you're in Christ, he is worthy. And we love him, and so we love you. So, after being reminded of Christ and of, of his uh, relationship with Paul, now getting into the faith and the pedigree of Timothy's family. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and in your mother, Eunice. And now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. After being reminded of his Christ-centered ministry, he's now reminded of the sincere faith. So I want you to notice here, in both of those instances, the faith that dwelt in your mother and grandmother now dwells in you. Let's talk about the dwelling before the application. This faith dwells because it is a work of the Spirit. The Spirit of God dwells in the people of God. That's how our faith dwells. I think many of us think that my faith remains in me as long as I'm faithful. There is no faith apart from the indwelling Spirit who produces faith. Let me prove it. Let's look at just a few verses later. Verse 13 of chapter 1. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. The faith, the love we have, any ministry that we have is only because the Spirit of God has brought us to new life and has turned our hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. The Holy Spirit dwells in us, and so our faith dwells in us. And that is what gives us the privilege of the good deposit. That is what Timothy is to guard. Let me give you one more example. Romans chapter 8. We're going to look at uh, two sections in Romans chapter 8, because if you want to be encouraged, you turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I want to begin in verse 9. Because we, we can't get to our application if we don't have the foundation. This is the foundation, the work of the Spirit within the saints. We can't get to applying the work of the Spirit if we aren't very sure that this is the work of the Spirit. And where our faith and our new life comes from. Romans chapter, nine, or excuse me, chapter 8, verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact... The spirit of, the God, spirit of God dwells in you. Notice this language of being in you, being in you. There are only two camps. You are in the flesh, meaning you belong to the world. You are dead in your trespasses and sins, or you are in the spirit. And the only reason you're in the spirit is because the Father sent the Son who sent the spirit to dwell in you. And if that spirit dwells in you, then you're alive. But if the Spirit doesn't, the rest of the verse, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if the Spirit of Christ is in you, although the body's dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, think about that. The same gospel power that after three days brought the Son of God fully human fully divine, out of the tomb, that power is in you, what do you think ministry looks like? What do you think hope and confidence looks like? That power dwells in you. That is the source of our faith. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. It is the dwelling of the spirit 
that produces and continues our faith. What an encouragement to the saints. This should give us confidence. What an amazing work God has done. I was dead as a stone, but now my heart pumps spiritual life, which produces repentance and faith. So this is Paul continuing to remind Timothy. Remember, if we're thinking about a young pastor who struggles with fear and struggles with being timid, he needs to be reminded. Most of us in this room need this reminder often. And so he goes on. I am reminded of your sincere faith, faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. He, he moves from Paul's ancestors to now Timothy's ancestors who fall in this line of believing Jews, those from the line of Abraham who put their trust in the living God and the fire that is in the heart of this godly grandmother and this godly mother now reside in Timothy. Praise God for godly grandmothers and mothers. Praise God for spiritual mothers. They didn't know who their son was going to become, but they knew that the true and living God redeemed them. And they were going to raise him in the fear and admonition of the Lord. They were going to nurture him and discipline him according to God's word. And now their faith resides in him. So let's just take a moment and find encouragement in moms out there, grandmothers out there. Women who have, this, who have opportunities to disciple other women, do not grow weary in doing good. Be faithful in your homes. The world makes you think it's not a big deal. Timothy, the, one of the most faithful people we have in the entire New Testament, is there because of the faithfulness of his grandmother and his mother. It is a big deal. And how often does God bring to life and bless faithful families. Generational spiritual mothers produce Timothys. Don't stop. We need them. So all that is building up to verse six. For this reason, let me tell you the, the purpose of why I say all that. Why the big, long introduction, Paul? Why are you looking back to Israel? Why are you looking to my mother and to my grandmother? There's one command in this entire section, and it is vitally important. For this reason, here's another reminder, fan into flame the gift of God. In this entire personal passage, there is one command, there is one aim, and it's good, so we're going to spend the rest of our time here. I want to clarify quickly, and then we're going to apply. Fan into flame. This in the Greek can mean one of two things. Rekindle what is small, or keep blazing, keep burning whatever's already there. Either way, it means a big fire. Either way, it means a bonfire that everyone is gathered around. That is who Timothy is to be. Now let's look at some of the elements here and then we'll apply it. Fan into flame the gift of God. We must see that this is a spiritually given power. It's not anything Timothy can manifest on his own. God has given it to him. He's given him insight and he's given him effectiveness for ministry. We're not sure exactly what this means other than it is given by God and which is in you. This is internal. This is not external. Not something Timothy goes out and buys. Not something that someone else can bestow on him. This is what God has done in him. It is an internal indwelling gift of the Spirit. And Paul attributes it to his ordination, installation, commission, whatever word you want to use. The beginning of his ministry, which is through you, through the laying on of my hands. Um, so I think... 1 Timothy 4 gives a little bit of an indication. 1 Timothy 4, just flip over a page or two in your Bibles. Same language here. Do not neglect the gift you have, 
First Timothy 4.14, excuse me. Do not neglect the gift you have, which is given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Okay, what, was, what is the gift? What is the prophecy? I think the passage in context helps us. Verse 11. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Okay, so what is the gift he's been given? He needs to teach. He needs to set an example. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. What is directly after it? Verse 15, practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. What marks Timothy's ministry? Faithfulness, a teaching. The word of God, preached, taught, applied, again and again and again. That is where we hear about our salvation. That is where our salvation comes through the hearing of this word. And so this is the gift given to Timothy. And so here's the point. Fan into flame, Timothy. Wait, wait a second. Timothy has it already. So Paul's giving to Timothy, just because you know the gospel, just because you know Christ, just because you have faithful matriarchs in your family, just because I discipled you, don't take that for granted. Take what you have and fan it into flame. It is so easy to do to become lazy. It is so easy to think, yep, I'm saved, my ticket's punched, I'm good. Yep, I come from a long line of faithful Christians, I'm just going to kick my feet up and check out. Paul says, no, make that light even brighter. Fan that flame. And so any effective minister is called and enabled by God to do his work. But this is not just for pastors. This is not a, solely a pastoral passage. Every Christian has been given the flame of new life. Every Christian is called to ministry. My job as a pastor is to equip you, the saints, for ministry. And everything that God calls you to, he will equip you for. That spark of life in you is a gift of God. And no matter how little it is, no matter if you had a great spiritual upbringing or none, let me just tell you for a second, God is not surprised that you're weak. He's not caught off guard that you're fearful. He's not caught off guard that you're insecure and you somehow think, I feel insecure, I feel insignificant, so God can't use me. He's not surprised. But whatever he has given you, to whatever measure, Paul tells us in Romans 12 that both faith and grace are given in measure. In proportion to that measure, if he's given you a little mustard seed, he will use it. And you're, you are responsible for what he's given you. Because he's given it. And so in Christ... Let's talk theologically what's going on here. This is a flame within every believer that is ignited by the Holy Spirit. How do you start a fire? You need an ignition source. You need some air. The breath of the Holy Spirit is, Jesus tells us in John 3, we don't know when he's coming, when he's going, but it is the breath of life. He breathes life into our lungs. He, he sparks life within us. And even if you've got a little ember, we are to fuel what God has begun. Uh, I like Proverbs, not Proverbs, Psalm 18, 28 here. Psalm 18, 28. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. If any light comes out of darkness, if there is any life out of death, it is God who does it. And so if there is light within you, we must start there. God has given it. God has begun it. Because if we forget that, everything I'm going to talk about in just a moment feels like moralism. I am not telling you do this in your own strength. I am telling you God has begun a good work in you. We work out of that and trust him to be faithful in its completion. We didn't start the fire. We didn't light it. And we shouldn't hide it. So, how do you start a fire? The 20-year-olds are like, what are they talking about? How do you start a fire? You fan it. 
You throw fuel on it. How do you increase a gift? You work it out. How do you build a muscle? You exercise it. You need to feed and fuel that fire, and that's what I want to talk about now. Because we don't hide that light under a bushel. We let no. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> we let it shine. Um, I want us to look at Philippians 2 with that. Very good, guys. Some of you grew up in VBS. All right, Philippians chapter 2. We, uh, know this, we, we know this verse. We have come here often. And I want to keep coming back because I think a lot of people struggle with this. What is the balance between the work of God in our lives and my responsibility to work out the work that God has done in me? Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, this is uh, a given with believers, so now not only as in my presence but much more in my absence, work out or fan the flame of your own salvation with fear and trembling, with reverence and seriousness. This is not a joke. This is not a part-time thing. And so if you stop there, this feels like a burden. But we don't stop there. For it is God who works in you both to will and work for his good pleasure. So it moves from a burden of, man, this is another work I have to do. This is a work you do out of the work of God. So it moves from a burden to a bolster. This should encourage us. This should enliven us. Oh, I get to fan this flame because God started it. Because it's God's work in me. There's a very big difference. Those who have tried to work for their salvation, it is futile and it is exhausting. But those who work because of their salvation, because God's done it, it's freeing. It's invigorating. That is what we're talking about here. And saints, I want you to be encouraged this morning. Even the smallest little ember can be fanned into a flame. Any one of you who's tried to go like Bear Grylls style and start your own fire knows it is not easy. But there is a great satisfaction when you see a little bit of smoke. Because where there is smoke, if you fan it, there will soon be fire. And so every one of us, even if your faith is small, there's a little smoke. I want you to turn to Isaiah 42. A lot of you thought I was going here. Maybe you didn't, um, but I want you to see what will characterize the ministry of Jesus, the servant of God. Isaiah 42, the prophecy of the coming servant of God. Notice the connection with the ministry of Christ and those who he came for. I want to get the build up so we can see the application. Isaiah 42, verse 1, behold my servant, This is the servant of the Lord. This is the Messiah who I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. The Father is speaking about the Son. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. This is the ministry of Jesus Christ, the God-man. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. He didn't come with pomp and circumstance. He came humbly. And what will mark his ministry? A bruised reed he will not break. What does that mean? You ever seen a reed that has been, that has been or a branch has kind of been bent over and it's, and, and it's bruised and it can't straighten back up? We think that thing's dead, but even if it's bruised and it's hurt, he won't, he won't break it, even if it seems weak. And here's what, where we're going to apply. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench, even if there's a little smoke. Faintly burning, he won't put it out. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice on the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Here's the message here. What you have seems small. You may feel bruised. You may feel faintly burning. But he is great and he won't stop until his ministry is done. 
And that reed, that wick, is a work of Christ. So, as we go into our application, do not remove your faintly burning wick from the power and faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Don't try to set it apart and act like the power and work of Christ no longer applies to you. And again, I am speaking to believers here. Because this passage should remind us it is Christ's work, it is Christ's ministry, and even as weak and pitiful as we are, he won't put that fire out. Richard Sibbs wrote a Puritan masterpiece. Um, You can leave it up there. I'll get to the quote in a second. Um, Actually, yeah, leave it up there. Um, And it's extremely helpful. He wrote it on those two lines. The book is called A Bruised Reed. Bruised reed, he will not break. A faintly burning wick, he will not quench. Two lines, many, many, many chapters. Spurgeon calls Richard Sibbs a man who scatters jewels with both hands. Uh, We're going to look at a lot of those jewels this morning. And so the idea here, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the first section deals with the bruised reed. The second is the faintly burning wick. We're going to focus on the faintly burning wick. He explains that in New Converts, that there is a little, every flame produces light and produces heat, and he distinguishes the two. But every ember, every new Christian life has a little bit of light and a little bit of heat. Every, every flame has a little flicker. And a small measure of grace is given in the midst of sin, and so it seems overwhelming as a new Christian. But as we're going to see, that light is to be built. That flame is to be fanned. That grace is to be increased. And how do we know it will happen? Because Christ gave us that flame through his spirit, and he won't put it out. Now here comes the quote. He says this spark, which he speaks of, we're going to say spark, flame, light, fire, all the same thing. This spark, which is in everyone who is in Christ, is from heaven. It is his own that is kindled by his own spirit. And secondly, it tends to the glory of his powerful grace in his children, that he preserves the light in the midst of darkness, a spark in the midst of of swelling waters of corruption, even if it feels like your heart is so dark and so weak and so sinful because it is, one little spark of Christ in your heart redeems it all. That is how powerful the work of his spirit is. So let's look at some of those jewels. And and, um, so he's got many chapters. We're gonna look at uh, some of chapter 11, which has 10 encouragements, very puritanical, 10 encouragements of this presence of this holy fire. And I want you to know, Full disclosure, my desire in pastoral ministry, our desire as elders here, is to help you fan that flame for ministry, is to equip you for ministry, is to encourage you in what Christ has given you, blow on it, breathe on it, throw gasoline on it, that we are people who have flaming fire for the living God who saved us. There are 10 of these, um, and David will remember, because I'll forget to send it out in the Tuesday email if, if you didn't get them. Uh, these are my paraphrases, and it's a great read. You can get a, you can get a modern translation, and the, it, the, uh, even the, the original translation is easy to read if you can get past the uh, worketh and leadeth and all that. Um, number one, this fire is kindled from heaven. So, God uses earthly means, the preaching and ministry of the gospel, to grow heavenly fire. And the one who begins it will sustain it. Let's just stop and take a deep breath right there. It is a heavenly fire. I think often in the Christian life, we get so overwhelmed with our weakness, we think we're the source. We think we're the ones who've got to keep this thing burning. It is a heavenly fire fire, do not forget what God has done in you. Number two, even the smallest little light possesses some heat. Even yours. Even the smallest little light possesses some heat. Your little mustard seed is alive. 
Number three, every heavenly light directs the right way. Meaning a light that God shines will always point its way to Christ. And so if that is in you, and you fan it and you foster it, it will point you in the right way. I think a lot of you are confused in which way you should go because you are not fanning your flame. You are not looking at the light. You are looking at everything else, and you have not trained your eye to see the flicker. But the flicker is there, and we trust the direction of what God has put in us. Number four, every fire will begin to burn off what is corrupt from what it touches. Over time, fire purifies. And the longer that fire is in there, the more of the old man and the dead things it will burn off. Praise God for that. It isn't as quick as we would like, but the Lord is teaching us through the process. The next one is like it. Number five, it will expose what is evil. And the one who loves the light will love reform or being made into the image of Christ, being reformed into our new nature. Do you love when your sin is exposed? Do you love that, okay, now I'm aware of, of, that, of that sin. Thank you, God. I can, I can begin to put it to death. Or do you fight it? Do you run from God's work in your heart? Number six. Even the smallest fire is active. Grace is always working, even if it doesn't seem like it. Jesus said, I am working and my Father is working. Jesus does not take a day off. So if he has begun a gracious work in you, he's still working. Even when you want to quit, he will never. Number seven, fire makes metal malleable. Even the hardest steel begins to bend and melt under fire. That is our hard hearts that he melts and molds with his work. All you stubborn people out there, praise God, he has a refining fire. Number eight, fire lights what it touches on fire. I love this. So when grace is at work with us and we fan the flame and it's worked out, it sets others on fire too. It is a contagious faith. Number nine, sparks fly upward. We've all seen this at a bonfire, right? This heavenly spark will produce heavenly desires. If you fan the flame, it will direct you upward. And the last one I'm just going to quote, because I can't summarize it better than he does. Fire... If it has any matter to feed on, enlarges itself and mounts higher and higher. If you fuel it, it will grow. And the higher it rises, the purer the flame. So where true grace is, it grows in measure and purity. Smoking flax will grow to a flame, and as it increases, so it works out the contrary and refines itself more and more. Christians, God has begun a spark in you, and as we fan the flame... As we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, it gets hotter, and it gets higher, and it gets purer. And that is how God grows us, beginning with the work he's done in us and continuing with the work that we do out of his work. So, brothers and sisters, fan the flame and watch it grow. I'd be remiss if I didn't give one reminder and warning to those who have no fire. Isaiah chapter 50. If you're still in Isaiah, just go over a couple chapters. Three short verses. Actually, two short verses. There is no verse 12. Isaiah 50, verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. This is your call. This is your time. You have heard all of the benefits of the work of God. Just because God is sovereign does not mean you do not cry out to him. You cry out to him. If you are walking in darkness, if you have no light, cry out to him and trust in the name of the Lord. 
Because if we go to the next verse, there is another type of fire that is a false fire, just like a false gospel. Verse 11, behold, all of you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches. There are some of you in here this morning who think you can start the flame in your own heart, who think that you can carry a torch that you start yourself. He goes on. You walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you kindled. You are acting as your own God. This you have from my hand. You want to be your own God? You want to light your own, your, your own, your own fire? Here's what you'll have. You shall lie down in torment. There is a true fire that the Spirit ignites that can never be put out. But there is a false fire that will set you ablaze in painful agony forever. You can cry out to the God who gives light out of darkness, or you can try your own light and end up in darkness for eternity. This is what is set before mankind. That's the warning. Um, Going long, but I'm going to land us here in verse 7 and give some encouragement at the end. 4, verse 7, all the way back in 2 Timothy. It's a long diversion. For, here's the purpose. This shows what accompanies and what reminds us of the gifts of God. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. This sounds like Romans 8. Um, I'm just going to read it and not explain it. Romans 8, 12 through 17. I want you to be encouraged in this. This is a family conversation. This is for the church. If you're here this morning and you are not in Christ, I hope you are envious. And I hope you can't sleep tonight because this sounds so good and you're so empty. Uh, But for the rest of us, saints, when we think about the spirit that we've been given in Christ, so then, brothers, continuing where we left off earlier, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. There is no life without death. Christ must die, had to die, so that we could live. We must suffer and die to ourselves so that we may live to Christ. And once you have, that is the recipe for fear. Timothy struggled with fear and being timid. And many of you struggle with fear. So when you struggle with fear, what do you remember? Do you live in your fear or do you look to the promise of life? Do you remember what God has given you and equipped you and been gracious to you in, that you are inheritant with Christ? This spirit of fear is not from Christ. There is no fear in him. But what's in him? It's power and love and self-control. Quickly. Our master has been given all power and all authority over all creation. And if we are united in him, it is that power that sustains us and carries us. It is that power that we carry into ministry because it is his message and his power that is on our lips, not our own. It is a spirit of love. The gospel is is one of love, the love of the Father. Shown us in the sacrificial love of the Son, reminding us by the continual love of the Spirit. We have a ministry of power and love, and self-control. This new slavery, it's not a slavery to sin. It's a slavery to righteousness. So we can control our mind and our thoughts and take them captive. And saints, if you are in Christ, this has been given to you. This is part of the gift. This is within the flame. This is what makes it hot. You have power. You have love. You have self-control. You have everything you need to fan that flame. So in conclusion, 
Saints, remember Christ. For we are of Christ. Everything we do is in Christ, and what we have is from Christ. But also remember spiritual fathers. If you don't have one, get one. Look at what it did for Timothy. Seek them out. Find them in the scriptures. You can look to the example of others throughout church history, throughout the scriptures. If you don't have a spiritual mother, find one. This pattern should be in our homes and in our lives. Saints, bring someone younger along with you. Look at the encouragement, the reminder that Paul gave Timothy. Spiritual brothers and sisters, do you have people in your life who remind you of the grace of Christ, who pray for you, who cry with you, who share the joy of the Lord with you? This is how we fan the flame with our spiritual mothers, fathers, brothers, and sisters because of, and finally, our spiritual life given by the Spirit of God according to the grace of God. Because even when we are weak in our faith, he is faithful even with our little flame. So brothers and sisters, fan that flame. We can freely enjoy it and throw gas on it. Why? Because our God is a consuming fire. And what he has put ablaze, no one will put out. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We praise you. I feel like we covered so much and we just got started. Lord, may we never tire of hearing of your grace and your work for us. May we never forget the faithful who have come before us and who walk alongside us, may we never forget our Savior and the gift we've been given through his Spirit. Lord, help your saints, encourage your saints to fan the flame that you have given them. And anyone here who has lit their own fire, put it out. Show them the darkness that exists apart from you. Send your Spirit to ignite new life in them that they may cry out for forgiveness and life through Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.